when a trauma happens, it, it changes us. Literally, it changes us. It cause, causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this can change how our genes function, sometimes for, for even generations. Technically, there's a chemical tag after the, an event, a traumatic event, that attaches to our DNA. And it tells the cells to use or ignore certain genes, enabling us to deal with this trauma that just happened. Today's episode is seriously one of my favorites. I cannot wait to share it with you. And for you to discover all about this author and the book that has made a tremendous impact on me and my life. Mark Woolen is the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco and is a leading expert in the field of inherited family trauma. He's also the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. Mark specializes in working with depression, anxiety, obsessive thoughts, fears, panic disorders, chronic pain, and persistent symptoms and conditions. He is someone that has tremendously helped me over this past year. And this is an episode where I get incredibly vulnerable. I talk about parts of my personal life and my upbringing that I've never shared publicly before. And Mark walks me through how to end cycles of trauma and really tells me how my family history has shaped who I am and why that's important. And most importantly, it will also show you who you are, why you may work the way that you do, why certain things may be limiting you or stopping you from achieving your dreams and how to overcome them. I cannot wait for you to dive into this episode. I also want to make sure that you have subscribed to the Influencer Podcast if you haven't done so already. You can subscribe wherever you tune in from and please leave us a review while you're there. Make sure to screenshot this episode on your phone and tag me on your Instagram story and hashtag the influencer podcast because I really want to know what you thought about today's episode and if there was anything transformative that happened in the way that you look at your life and how you show up. If you're wanting even more influencer podcast goodness after the episodes, then please join our Facebook community for daily tips on how to up-level your life and your business and you get to chat with other listeners. You can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the influencer podcast to be a part of this wonderful community. Have you ever bought something online only to find out later that you missed a discount? Well, with Honey, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Honey is a free browser add-on that finds me the best deals online. Now, I've been using Honey for over a year now, and how it works is that the app magically auto-applies the best deal to my card at checkout. Honey finds discounts and coupons to some of my favorite shops, including Amazon, Sephora, Nordstrom, and so many more. I've bought everything from makeup at Sephora to office supplies from Amazon using Honey, which saved me over $34. Look, there's really no reason not to use Honey. It's free to use and easy to install on your computer in just two clicks. So shop with confidence. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash TIP. That's joinhoney.com slash TIP. Honey, the smart shopping assistant that saves you time and money when you're shopping online. Welcome to the Influencer Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Solomon, a marketing strategist, brand building expert, speaker, and New York Times bestselling publicist. This is where I take you behind the scenes with today's top influencers, industry insiders, and entrepreneurs as they share step-by-step -step strategies to help you turn your online dreams into a purposeful and profitable business. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for being with us today. 
Hi, Julie. I'm glad to be here. Um, now, as so many that listen to the show or follow me on social media, and as you know, I mean, your book, It Didn't Start With You, is so incredibly profound. It has touched me and transformed my life and my work in, in so many ways, you know, in just a, such a short amount of time. And um, it's truly one of the most highly recommended books that I could recommend to someone. Um, I feel like I've, I'm like, you should be the president of your fam club. Cause I've bought like 10 of them and I just pass them out like candy. <laughs> because oh, I think that, that it is so important that, you know, every human being on this planet who breathes and who came from another human being <laughs> needs to read this book. So um, it's incredible. So Mark, I know that you had a personal experience um, with kind of your discovery into the work that you do, which we can talk talk about in a little bit, but I would love to know kind of what was that that uh, tipping point, if you will, of when you really knew that this was something that a lot, if not everyone, um, goes through, whether they realize it or not, and that this needed to be the message that you brought into the world. Yeah, many, many years ago, I was working um, as a young therapist, and I, I didn't have the concept of inherited family trauma back then. Yet here I was seeing clients that had symptoms that couldn't be explained in the context of their life experience. They were carrying a trauma but didn't experience this trauma directly. We'll talk about this later, I'm sure, how the stress responses are, of our parents and grandparents uh, are heritable. But going back to this time, um, it was a time when I was working with many self-injurers, um, many cutters. In fact, there was this one cutter, she was a 24-year-old woman, and she would cut herself in the most extreme way uh, she would nearly bleed to death. She would cut into her arms, her legs, her abdomen um, so deeply that she would hit a vessel and um, uh, our parents would have to rush her to the hospital um, just to stop the bleeding. And she would spend weeks at a time in a psych ward. Um, so one day we're, we're in the office and, you know, she was showing me the scars on her arms and legs and I, I handed her a pen, and I, I'll call her Sarah for the sake of the interview. I said, Sarah, I'm going to hand you a pen and envision that this is the knife that you use. And when you bring it to your body, stop there and tell me what's the first image, what's the first thought, what's the first feeling. And she brings the pen to her arm, and as soon as she gets to her skin, I say, stop there. What, what, what's happening right now? And she said, I, I, I don't deserve to live. And here I am looking, you know, Julia, 24-year-old woman whose life has just begun. And I said, Sarah, what have you done? Did you cause an accident? Did you break up with someone? Did someone try to take, take his or her life? Um, and she said, no, nothing like that. And so I did the things that I knew how to do back then. I looked in her history with her family. I looked at her relationship with her mother and father, and she had a wonderful relationship with her mother and a wonderful relationship with her father. She was able to take in their love and their nurturance and had just good memories. So I did the other things I knew how to do. I looked at the attachment with her mom, and here she had a strong, secure, 
safe attachment, a good birth, a good pregnancy. Everything was lining up. I, I was flummoxed. I, did, I had nowhere to go. So thank God I asked this question. But I said, um, tell me about your grandmother, your grandfather, your, your grandparents. And boom, she dropped the bomb. Her father's mother had been an alcoholic. And she was driving the car drunk. And grandpa was in the passenger seat. And she crashed into a pole. And she survived, but her husband went through the glass and got cut, lacerated on the glass, and bled to death before the ambulance could arrive. Mm. And in that moment, everything was clear. She, you know, my client, Sarah, she was carrying this trauma of bleeding to death, but it wasn't just that. She also carried her grandmother's feelings of, I don't deserve to live for taking another's life, particularly the life of her beloved. And so in that moment, I, I knew where to go. Um, and we, you know, at that moment, I had her visualize her grandmother and grandfather in front of her and um, tell her, you know, tell your grandfather what you do. Tell him that you cut your body and you nearly bleed to death the way he did bleed to death. And, and she did this and I said, what's happening? And she said, I can feel him there and he doesn't want me to do this. And um, he's telling me that this doesn't belong to me. You know, like, like the book, the title of the book, it didn't start with you. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I had her talk with her grandmother and say, grandma, I, Never understood this, but when I cut myself, I have this feeling like I don't deserve to live. And I can see this is the feeling <coughs> that you had um, when you crashed the car and took grandpa's life. And in that moment, in that session, she stopped cutting. And I realized that in, in, way back when we had to look into the family history beyond the parents. We had to look at the traumas of our parents as well, our grandparents, perhaps even our great-grandparents, because we can be the unwelcome beneficiaries of these traumas that never belonged to us in the first place. Mm. My friends, have you ever thought that you have done the hard part? You have started your business and you have taken that leap from belief into really stepping out and claiming a vision for yourself. But you know that if you want to make money doing what you love, you need other support. You need to grow. You need to scale. You need a marketing strategy. You need a lot of this stuff. Now, of course, I talk so much about these things, right? Like how to identify your target audience, where to find them, which marketing channels to focus on. So you're really making the most out of your budget. And of course, how to use things like data to set goals. But there's another great podcast that I love out there that also talks about this stuff. And it's called This is Small Business. This is Small Business, an original podcast from Amazon, answers so many of these kinds of questions. Whether you're dreaming of starting your business or you're looking to take a part-time side hustle full-time, or maybe you're a few years in and you're ready to scale. This is Small Business is going to give you the practical tips that you can start using today. And I know that if you love these topics on my podcast, you're going to love them on this one too. Make sure to follow This is Small Business on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you don't miss these fantastic episodes. And a big thanks to This is Small Business for sponsoring the show. So yeah, I want to dive into more of that. The 
what you just said about, you know, the family, their challenges, their anxieties, their experiences. Um, how is that possible for that to be inherited down to me? How does that happen? And I know that you, you mentioned this a lot in the book, uh, with epigenetics, um, could you break that down for us a little bit so um, we can wrap our brains around that? Yeah, I'd be glad to. As uh, you know, as infants, we we don't enter the world uh, to use a computer analogy with a clean hard drive. There's an operating system already in place that contains the fallout from you know, the traumas that people in our family history have experienced. And here we are born with these fears and feelings that don't belong to us. And you know, we have to go into the science to, to really break it down. Um, when a trauma happens, it, it changes us. Literally, it changes us. It cause, causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this can change how our genes function, sometimes for, for even generations. Technically, there's a chemical tag after the, an event, a traumatic event, that attaches to our DNA. And it tells the cells to use or ignore certain genes, enabling us to deal with this trauma that just happened. And then the way our genes are affected um, actually changes how we act or feel. For example, we can become um, sensitive or reactive to situations that are similar to the original trauma, maybe a, a trauma in a past generation, so that we have a better chance of surviving it in this generation. I'll, gi I'll give you an example. If our grandparents came from a, a war-torn country, they would develop and pass forward a skill set uh, that, that helps them survive this war trauma, maybe sharper reflexes or, or, or quicker reaction times. Um, you know, there's bombs going off. There's there's, there's bullets flying. There's uniformed men lining people up in the square. And our grandparents are terrified. So in their physical bodies, they're developing reactions to the violence to help um, them survive this trauma. And that's what they're passing forward, a, a stress response. So we can inherit the stress response. But the problem is we, we can inherit a stress response with the dial set to 10. And here we are continually preparing for this war, this catastrophe that never arrives, but our body doesn't know. And we rarely make the link that our anxiety, uh, our hypervigilance, our depression, our shutdown is connected to our family members. We, we just think we're wired this way, Julie. Mm -hmm. We just think that, you know, oh, this is just the way I am. I get nervous when I'm in a crowd of people, or I get nervous when I hear loud noises, or, or I get anxious when I see um, a dark car pass by. And yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm afraid of flying. Right. Or, yeah. Yeah. You say in, um, on page 46 of the book, when entangled, you unconsciously carry the feelings, symptoms, behaviors, or hardships of an earlier member of your family system as if these were your own. Yeah. It, it, it's it's strange but true, and the what what's strange about it is that if, if we don't make this link, we we don't consider that we are carrying our grandmother's or grandfather's trauma. You know, scientists have long suspected something like this was happening, 
But it wasn't until about 13 years ago that a, a neuroscientist named Rachel Yehuda out of Mount Sinai Medical School discovered that, you know, she was working with Holocaust survivors and their children. And she discovered this strange thing. She found that the children were born with the same trauma symptoms as their parents, specifically uh, the, the low levels of cortisol, the stress hormone that gets, gets us back to normal as, after a stressful event. So she finds this in the Holocaust survivors and the children, both anxious, both depressed, both carrying the effects of PTSD. She finds a similar pattern in babies who were um, born to mothers who were at or near the World Trade Center uh, when it was attacked on 9-11. Do you remember that study? Um, so she looks at the mothers who are pregnant. Mm -hmm. They go on to develop PTSD. Mm -hmm. And their babies also go on to develop PTSD. Not only that, they were smaller for their, gest <clears throat> their gestational age. And they were born with 16 genes <clears throat> that expressed differently than babies who weren't at the world it, it mm -hmm. weren't in, in in utero during yeah. the World Trade Center. Yep. And also in the effects, um, I remember Chernobyl. I mean, not only did they have physical effects because of the amount of radiation, but it was, you know, they're starting to see now because that happened in the 80s. I mean, children that were born then that are now having children. Exactly. Just and just like even the children of Rwanda, the genocide, um, the children who weren't even there, they're experiencing the symptoms of terror that their parents had gone through. Just like you're saying at Chern Chernobyl. You know, Rachel Yehuda tells us that if one of our parents had symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that you and I are three times more likely to have symptoms of it. And mm -hmm. we're three times more likely to struggle with anxiety or depression. I mean, this is, this is a major discovery in the last 15 years, epigenetics, how, it's, how we're being able to link these feelings in our body with traumas that occurred before we, we were even born. And I want to talk about that a little bit more because I know that you had mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of times we're completely unable to differentiate what is ours from what isn't because we don't know what we don't know. And we just feel like, you know, well, we were born this way or this is all I've ever known. If you, you know, you, you, you don't think to think outside of that box, so to speak. And you talk about unconscious loyalty a lot in the book. And I would love for you to kind of share um, with us, what does that mean? And how does this affect or influence the way that we live and respond in the world? So we know from the science that epigenetically that we can carry from birth events that took place prior to our birth. So we can carry a stress response, our mother's stress response, our father's stress response to an event that they experienced. But how do you explain, and I love the question, how do you explain when our mother suffers and we suffer similarly? Our father fails at age 40, and we're already born. But around the age of 40, we start sh metaphorically shooting ourselves in the foot, um, losing our money. Similarly, um, our mother um, uh, is treated poorly in her relationship, and we're treated poorly in our relationship. Why is this? 
And, and science can't explain this, though it's observed phenomenologically again and again. Um, there seems to be uh, an unconscious loyalty that children have with parents to suffer similarly. And again, they rarely make the link. For example, uh, we repeat our mom's or dad's failed marriage. Um, you know, I, I, can, I can talk about, you know, in, in the book I do this, I talk at great lengths about mm -hmm. how we carry these events generationally. But, but you're right, there is this, this concept that we can't back up or hasn't been shown yet to exist in terms of science of a loyalty to suffer similarly. You know, I talk about in the book something called the four unconscious themes. Yep. And, you know, the in the four unconscious themes, um, I talk about this at great length, how there's sort of an ancestral alarm clock that starts ringing as soon as we um, uh, reach a certain age or um, uh, ex experience a similar event to one of our parents. It's like a, a trigger goes off that sets the whole ball in motion. Um, I, I, in my book, I talk about one of them, um, is I talk about a woman who, um, you know, she loved her husband. She loved him a lot. But as soon as she married him, she felt trapped. And when we looked at her family history, we saw that both grandmothers were given away as child brides at nine and 12. So here she was connected with her grandmothers and experience that happened before she was born. We can, you know, we can look at uh, grandma would have, uh, may have developed a stress response to this feeling trapped in the marriage, which could be heritable, or there's this unknown, this unconscious loyalty that extends beyond the, the veil, extends beyond um, uh, the, the experience of our being born. We're not born with a blank slate. You know, when I, in the book, I talked about what happened with her sisters. They also carried the trauma, but experienced it in different ways. Mm -hmm. The one sister married a much older man, 20, 30 years older, like the grandmother. And the other sister um, never wanted to be married at all. She refused to be married lest she be trapped. Well, you know, these, there's many triggers. Uh, you know, I could mention, Julie, that, you know, we move to a new place, and that's mm -hmm. a trigger. Suddenly we become depressed. Um, like our ancestors that were persecuted and forced out of their homeland. Or we get rejected by our partner and the grief in us is insurmountable and it takes us back to a much earlier time, maybe to when we were an infant and we had a break in the attachment with our mother. Or we get pregnant and it's as though, again, this ancestral alarm clock starts ringing. I, I one time worked with this woman, she was consumed with anxiety, but she had no idea why. And she came to my office and I said, let's, let's go a little deeper. Do you remember when you first started feeling this anxious? And she said, I, I, I don't know, maybe six, six, seven months ago. And I, what happened back then? She goes, well, well, I became pregnant back then. And, and she, I, I forgot to mention she was pregnant when she came to my office. And so I said, what is it about being pregnant? that has you, in, have you, has you feeling this anxiety? And she said, I, I don't know, maybe I, I'll harm this baby. I, I have this fear I'm gonna harm this baby. And I asked her if she or anyone in her family had ever harmed a baby, and she was about to say no. And she said, 
Oh my God. And it had jogged a memory. Mm-hmm. She remembered that she heard a story about her grandmother when she was a, a very young woman. The grandmother lit a candle and it caught the curtains on fire and then caught the house on fire. But the baby was upstairs sleeping and she tried to run up the steps, but they were engulfed in flames and she couldn't get the baby out. And then my client said, oh, but we were never allowed to talk about this. It would upset my grandmother. And then in that moment, you know, we made the link that she had inherited this terror pattern from her grandmother. And then we could break the pattern and work with it. And I want to kind of dive into some of those what those patterns could be or what you call, you mentioned it earlier, the four unconscious themes. What are the themes? um, And you mentioned four, and I would love maybe to go through each of them briefly for those listening that they should kind of look out for. And then um, I want to kind of dive into, you know, more of the tools of, of how do we, I don't know if reverse this is the right way, but how do we get to a place of healing with the traumas that may be there that we may not even consciously know uh, you know, are are really influencing so much in our lives that are not going as we would like it to go. The first one you talk about um, merging with the feelings, behaviors, and experience of a parent. Um, it could also be a grandparent, as you just mentioned in that story that you shared. Yeah. So I I, I break it down as merging and identification. Um, we when we merge with a parent, we we don't see ourselves as separate. Um, it's it's that story of uh, mom um, uh, gives away her first child and we unconsciously abort our first child, not realizing that we're merged or living a similar life, often a similar misfortune. So our, again, our dad fails uh, in his in his 40s and we start to fail at the same age. You know, one of the signs um, that we're merged is something happens around the same age, um, or as I talked about earlier, a similar event like getting married or, or having a child or moving to a new place or, or um, uh, what was the other one I mentioned? Um, um, getting married, um, having a child, moving to a new place, um, um, oh, or getting rejected by a partner. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the signs of uh, that that we're carrying trauma that doesn't belong to us. Um, so the four unconscious themes are theme number one. We've merged, unco- and they're all unconscious. We don't understand the effects. We've merged with a parent without making the connection that we're living a similar life, an unhappy life, um, a depressed life, um, suffering in a similar way. Another theme is when we reject a parent, we, there are unconscious effects of that rejection. For example, the behavior that we don't like in that parent, we mm-hmm. can't see it in ourselves. We've disowned it, and it can express unconsciously in us. In other words, we can't see when we're the same. Or we'll pull in a, a, a romantic partner that expresses that same rejected behavior. In other words, if mom was cold, we'll pull in a partner who's also cold, um, so we have another chance to heal that trauma. Um, Or we can even pull in a nice partner, but turn them cold because we're hypervigilant and cautious, expecting them to be cold, expecting them to do to us what our parents did to us. Um, Mm. So, or, you know, another way 
rejecting a parent can uh, affect us as we, um, the way they treated us, the way we envisioned, the way we um, uh, believed we were treated, we could treat ourselves the same way. So if our mom and dad ignored us, we can ignore that young part inside us. Or if dad was aggressive, we can be inwardly aggressive. Or if mom was critical, we can be self-critical, doing to ourselves what we believe the parent did to us. So I always say it's never a good idea if we can help it to continue this rejection. And in fact, there's even a study done by Harvard called the Harvard Mastery of Stress Study that was done in the 50s. I talk about this in the book, but I'll mention it here, where they looked at 21-year-olds and they followed them for 35 years and they asked one multiple choice question. Describe your relationship with your mom and your dad. And they gave you warm, warm and close was one, friendly was two, uh, tolerant was three, and strained and cold was four. And people who checked uh, tolerant, strained, or cold, 35 years later, if they checked this about their mother, 91% of them had a significant health issue. Wow. When they were 56. You know, we're talking about coronary artery disease, diabetes, alcoholism, um, and similar numbers with the father, 82 and 50%. Um, so this was an interesting study, and it, it's kind of lost in consciousness. People, um, do, I, in fact, I never heard of the study until I started to do the research. And it was just fascinating how I see this bears out mostly to be true that we uh, the more we reject a parent, the more we can live an unhappy life, similar to that parent. In fact, similarly, meaning the more we reject them, the more we can merge with them, Right, which, which is also true. And then th those are the first two themes. The third theme that's unconscious is when we have a break in the bond with our mom. And, and that can bring a whole host of uh, unconscious experiences into our life. For example, when we, uh, if we have a break in the bond with our mom, a break in the attachment, it can be a challenge for us to feel safe and secure in life. When mom's connection is cut off physically or emotionally, we can have difficulty trusting the feeling of who we are inside. And that's because a child's inner experience is dependent on mom's attunement. So when we have a break with our mom, it feels like a break with ourself, with our gut, with our gut feelings, with our core. The psychoanalyst Heinz Kohut talks about how the gleam in our mother's eye is the vehicle for how a child develops in a healthy way, healthy narcissism. But when we're cut off from our mom's presence, when that gleam wasn't there because she was depressed, she was fighting with our dad, she didn't got a lot of attunement from her mother, um, we can be cut off from our core. I mean, I can go on and on. Um, well, and that's what I found so fascinating about this one, because when I, before I kind of read the book, if if someone would have said, did you ex experience an interruption in the early bond with your mother? I would say, of course not. My mother's great. She was always there. You know, I lived with her, you know, until I went off to college. Um, but then as I read the book, I realized that it, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean 
a physical separation. And that's what I was telling myself that it was like a, this, it, it's, it could mean that, but it could also mean a emotional separation. Oh yeah. If mom's depressed or not in sync with, with the baby, the message that the baby gets is something's wrong. Where, where did she go? Or, or if, if mom's afraid, I'm afraid, or if her attention gets diverted because of stress, stress because of her relationship with dad, or stress because of attention going to another child, or she didn't get a lot from her mother, we panic. And this can be as early as in utero. Where did she go? I don't matter. I'm not enough, or I'm too much, or ultimately something must be wrong with me. And as early as in utero, we can learn to organize around our mom's feelings with the, with the idea that isn't even cogitated. It, it's it's a, a sort of a, a, a um, an amygdala response that if I make mom feel okay, I'll be okay. And so we can re, re, learn repeatedly to leave our core to attend to her feelings to make, because it's a survival mechanism. If I can make her feel okay, she'll make me feel okay. But we no longer trust receiving from her. And then we we, we feel alone inside and we yearn for the security that's missing, even though she was there. Mm. The dopamine, technically, that's missing from, from uh, in the brain's reward motive, motivation circuitry. And then we start searching outside ourselves for what's missing. Alcohol, or it can be drugs, or sex, or TV, or cell phones, whatever it is. But, but absolutely. You know, that's, that's what, what I wanted to call attention to in the book is the third theme was there a, a break in the attachment physically or emotionally that disrupted our connection with our own inner core, with our own gut feelings? And can we get back to our gut by healing this break in the bond? That's the third theme. And then the fourth theme I talk about is what, what you mentioned, an identification with someone other than our parents, like grandma or grandpa, like Sarah the Cutter, um, or the woman who was terrified that she would harm her baby, she was identified with her grandmother, who had lost the baby in the fire when she lit, you know, lit that candle. So that's mm. an identification. We can be identified with a grandmother, a grandfather, an aunt, an uncle, uh, a victim or a perpetrator in the family, a sibling who did poorly. Uh, a half-sibling that was given away, things like that. And I would love to dive in because it's, it's, it is so much and it's a lot to like sink in and to think about. And again, you, I mean, really you map it out so beautifully in the book. Um, but what really was fascinating for me, and I know that we, we talked before um, we got on this conversation to kind of map into this is once you kind of learn about these themes, the next step is is what you call the core language map. And this is really, you know, how to uncover which theme you may be connected to unconsciously. Yeah. Um, and I would love to kind of go through that. And um, I'm happy to even use my own life experience and some of the stuff that I shared with you prior um, as we walk through this, if that would be um, a great example for those who are listening, just oh, because um, of how beneficial I think it could be. Thank you. That would be great. Yeah. Start off with a core language. Now, what is core language? So core language is trauma language. And, you know, I've discovered that when a trauma happens, it doesn't just create this stress response, this, this, this change in our 
our DNA, but it also leaves clues behind in the form of emotionally charged words uh, and sentences, clues that, you know, if we know how to look for it, creates like a breadcrumb trail and can lead us back to a traumatic event in our family history or in our early history with our mom. And when we know how to uncover this trauma language, this unconscious language, it's like finding that missing piece of the puzzle that lets the whole picture come into view and, and, and can give us a context that, that explains why we feel the way we feel. So yes, please tell me, tell me about your trauma language. Yes. Let's dive into my trauma. Um, so when I was going through the book, you know, the first thing that, that was kind of popping out to me and, and, um, I went through the core complaint first and then the descriptors that you call them to really kind of describe that complaint. Um, and then that leads into your sentence. And what I really uncovered is that when I peeled back all of the layers and all of the onions, and even though it didn't make any sense to me because I'm educated, I'm self-sufficient, I started and grew my own business, I have a family, I'm married, you know, on paper, everything looks great. But there is this visceral, deep, you know, fear inside me that, you know, my, my biggest fear of fears is that I would be left alone, homeless, under a bridge, you know, no one cares. And it's like I never even existed. Okay. Yeah. 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 So when I hear that language, um, no one will care. I'm homeless, I'll be left uh, under a bridge. Um, so the first thing as I start spinning a Rolodex in my, you know, where could that language come from? Whose language is that? And two things pop up for me. The first thing I would ask somebody would be what I talk in the book, what I call in the book, the bridging question. And um, what, I, what, what, I, what I would say is, okay, was there anybody in your family who was left, who was homeless? who wasn't cared for, who lived under a bridge or on the street. And I think I asked you that and you said no. And then the second question that I would ask from that same language is, tell me, Julie, um, the events that happened when you were small or in utero, or and I, I forget them now, but you'll probably tell the listener, um, when you were young, um, that would have occurred, uh, that where you felt disconnected, alone, left, and when, when the word homeless doesn't always have to mean someone in the family is homeless, it's how a baby would feel when there's a break in the attachment with the mother. Mm -hmm. So I would have asked you those questions, and and I'll yeah. let you take over from here. Yeah. So I mean, the ages of from what I can remember, my parents divorced when I was seven. So there was just a family break there. I went to live with my mother. Um, I am, I have an... Even before you tell the rest of it, mm -hmm. uh, so the ages going up to seven, three, four, five, six, seven, whenever your parents weren't getting along, would have also strained or stressed the attachment because mom would have been freaking out or, or, or depressed or, or anxious or sad worrying about her relationship. Correct. And when they split, I had an older brother who went with my father. And then I had an older half-sister who was my father's daughter, who still is. Um, but she ended up not really living a great life. She 
became addicted to drugs at a young age, which then caused this, basically the schizophrenia and bipolar within her. And she's been living in a halfway house for over a decade. So, so again, you know, when we're looking at this, uh, this could be two things. This could be uh, uh, the language of a break in the bond. I'll be left. I'll be alone. No one will care, which will be what the little girl, the toddler would feel if her mom and dad are fighting, splitting up, unhappy. Her mom's attention is taking up with the broken marriage. So that's one place that exists. But then I'm curious about, could this also be an identification with the sister? So how old was this sister when dad left that marriage? Um, She was about two years old. Oh, okay. So now she has a break in the bond because her, or it was likely to have a break in the bond because her mother would have been stressing um, Mm -hmm. around this this marriage that's fallen apart. How am I going to survive? Do am I going to have to work? Is is he going to be in the picture? All those questions. Um, And if you tell me the sister didn't do well, then another question I have is: Do I, in some sort of unconscious sympathy, feel these feelings? along with her. And that could be quite possible. The Mm -hmm. first place I'd look would be in your early family history with what was going on when you were little. And the second place I would look would would be to this sister and um, how in an unconscious sympathy, we, we talk about earlier, unconscious loyalty, you didn't do well and I benefited by getting your father he came into my family and you lost him. And because I gained and you lost, there's a part of an unconscious loyalty in me connected to you. And so we might look in that direction too. But again, I want to say for the listener, the first place I'd go in working with the healing would be in working <clears throat> with how mom may have been, her attention might have been taken away when you were little. And as early as even before I could consciously remember it. Absolutely. And so I would look at things that would, you know, when I'm working with somebody, I look from conception to age 10 to see, to look at events that would have broken the bond, that would have stressed the bond, that would have had the child feel, well, my mom's here, she's here, but emotionally maybe um, I don't trust that I can receive from her. Or I'm close with her, but I'm the giver. Or I'm really close with her, but the bond is about me making sure she's okay, rather than the bond being about I receive from her and I trust her love, nurturance, and care. So that's some of the distinctions we would look at is um, in a question, can I, can I trust her nurturance and receive her love and care or is it that I, from a very early age, learned to be the giver because she was stressed out? Right. And when I think, I think about the the ages of zero to seven as well with my dad and how stressed he might have been. I mean, he, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. He came, he lived in poverty as a child. He was one of nine boys. My, wow. my grandmother had nine she had 10 children actually the last one was a stillborn so she raised nine boys in poverty in a two-bedroom shack and so there was always this you know 
this feeling of detachment from him because there was this focus on him to just put food on the table, you know, very blue collar working man, didn't have a high, you know, had a high school degree, didn't have a college degree, uh, worked night shifts at a factory. And so there was, there was just the, the I remember the, the feeling of the heaviness of that, of the stress and anxiety and heaviness of that. Sure. Being one of nine children, that's a lot of children. And there may not have been enough mom to go around. And that also can stress the bond. And the fact that she loses a baby, um, her attention is diverted again. You know, what we know from this work um, is one of the most replicated studies in all of epigenetics is when baby mice are separated from their mothers. They can see the effects. The stress response is carried for three generations. And so that means that your dad's uh, broken relationship with his mother is heritable. And you could also have acquired, um, you know, the acquired in as part of your, um, you know, your, your essence, his experience of not getting enough from his mom. You know, the, it, it's interesting. We can look at the studies in two generations in humans. And, you know, we, we do it all the time. Um, we, we can see the, you know, the, the, the way Rachel Yehuda looked at um, Holocaust survivors and their children. In fact, three years ago, she discovered that traumatized survivors and their children, they shared the exact same gene changes in the exact same region of the very same gene. Technically, it was the FKBP5 gene, a gene involved in stress regulation and depressive disorders. But there... Researchers have looked to studies with mice because we cannot cause trauma to humans. Um, and so what they do is they have done this with mice where they've um, caused a stress response by separating uh, mice from their moms, sometimes for even just a short period of time. Um, and the effects could be observed for three generations. In my book, I, I talk about, let me see if I can find it. It's on page 35. Yeah, yeah, here it is, here it is. In one such study, I'm going to read four lines from my book. In one such study, researchers prevented females from nurturing their pups for up to three hours a day for the, for, during the first two weeks of life. That was it, just the first two weeks of life. <laughs> Later in life, their offspring exhibited behaviors similar to what we call depression in humans. The symptoms seemed to worsen as the mice aged. Surprisingly, some of the males did not express the behaviors themselves, but appeared to epigenetically transmit the behavioral changes to their female offspring. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So right there, Julie. Fascinating. Yeah, right there. You know, it could be, you know, what happened to your dad when his mom's attention got diverted with the missing baby? Or what happened to your dad, uh, being one of nine children, not getting a lot from his mom? Um, you know, that would be like also fathers who go off to war and, mm. you know, they come back numb and numb from the trauma. Daughters carrying their father's you know, fight, flight, or freeze response. His shaking, his terror, his shutdown. And in your case, it could be carrying this feeling of there's no one there, no one cares, I'll be alone. So that, that could be his feeling too. Mm -hmm. So now we're finding it three different ways. 
Right. Three different stages. Yeah, three different stages, right? Well, from all of these different layers, um, I heard a quote once, and I don't remember who said it, but it it was, um, what cannot be transformed will be transmitted. How do we learn to transform, to heal this trauma so we don't continue to transmit it? Good. Yeah, I feel like uh, the bearer of bad news. I feel like <laughs> I've just been delivering all, you know, all the bad news that we that we're all in the same boat and it's sinking, you know, but I'm not giving any, any of the good news. So thank you. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's actually a, a lot of good news that's coming out right now in the research. And, and I'll talk about, I'll talk about the good news first, and then I'll talk about how we heal. Um, so researchers are now able to reverse the trauma symptoms in mice and, and the implications are pretty vast. So they, those mice that are separated from their, Moms, once they're placed in positive, low-stress environments as adults, the trauma symptoms reverse and the behaviors improve. And even the changes that they would, uh, the changes that would be transmitted to the next generation, in the case of this one study, changes in DNA methylation. Um, this, there, there were changes which prevented the symptoms from being transmitted. Um, so there's lots of that going on now. There's uh, research showing that when um, mice are given, traumatized mice are having positive experiences, their trauma symptoms reverse. And that's exactly what we do with humans. It's how we heal. We've got to calm the brain's stress response, whether we've inherited it from our father or mother or whether it came from an early trauma with our mom, you know, breaking the bond, we've got to calm the stress response. And we do this by having new experiences that are powerful enough to override the stress response. So it isn't just having the new experiences. It's practicing the new feelings and the new sensations associated with the new experience. So, um, for example, we might, I talk a lot about this in the book, how we can experience, uh, how we can have positive experiences of receiving comfort or positive experiences of receiving support from a parent or that didn't have a lot to give, or even feelings of compassion or gratitude, arriving, you know, uh, arriving at feelings of compassion for our dad, you know, when you were telling me the story about his life, he might not have been able to have the parenting skills. But when I hear that he was one of nine kids, all of a sudden, our hearts open with compassion, say, well, that's a lot of children. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he had gotten enough. Or, or even practicing gratitude or practicing uh, generosity or loving kindness or mindfulness, really anything that allows us to feel strength or peace inside. And then, um, when we practice these experiences, we feed the prefrontal cortex, and it, it's, it helps us reframe the stress response, so it is a chance to calm down. Um, and then by doing that, uh, we not only create new neural pathways, we uh, stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters uh, like serotonin and dopamine, uh, feel-good hormones like uh, estrogen or oxytocin. And even the very genes involved in the 
body's stress response. It can begin to function in an improved way like those mice. They weren't transmitting it to the next generation. So we, we've got to practice. We've got to have new experiences. And then we've got to practice. The idea is to pull traction away from the midbrain, the limbic brain, the amygdala. We've got to bring engagement to the forebrain, specifically the prefrontal cortex, where we can integrate these new experiences and our brains can change. But the one thing I've learned is we can't just practice for the sake of practicing because someone tells us to do it. The practice has to have meaning for us. We've got to feel emotionally connected to it. So sometimes um, I'll suggest a practice when I'm working with somebody, and I'll see where the, where the juice is for the client, where the juice is like, oh, that feels great, or oh, that really means something to me. Then I know they're going to practice it. And then with the practice, because I think a lot of times somebody may say, well, you know, how am I going to practice this? Because I don't have a relationship with my sister or my mother passed away or I can't talk to my dad or, you know, whatever may be the, the reason that they feel that way. What can we do at that point? Well, see, the, the, a lot of times we've, our parents have passed away or we're not in contact with them or we don't feel safe making the connection with them. So we've got to practice in our own inner, in, in our own inner landscape. So for example, um, a listener hearing this might want to place a photograph of mom with whom she or he has a bad experience or uh, uh, childhood memories that aren't great. Place the photograph over your left shoulder. Look at it before you go to sleep at night, because at night, this is one of the most potent times for neuroplastic change. And tell the, you know, talk, talk to the photograph as though it's, um, uh, as though you're talking to your mom's soul, for example, and say, mom, I can't do this in real life, but please hold me in my sleep and uh, heal the break in the bond that happened between us. Teach me how uh, to trust your love, how to receive it, and how to let it in. And if you're listener does this, or if someone does this, they can heal the stress response. Um, and, you know, if mom has passed away, and or if mom's alive, all of a sudden the relationship begins to heal, and maybe they can heal it in real life as well. Mm. And I feel like um, it's, it's practice, like you said, as well. But it, not only can can healing this influence your success professionally in your business, but most importantly in your life and your relationships with yourself and with other people? Totally. totally. Um, I love you have a, the 21 success questions toward the end of the book that I, I found extremely helpful. And for anyone listening who's going to pick this book up, definitely um, check those out. Um, there's so many questions in here that allow you to kind of really dive into this and really peel the layers back. And you may even have to take you know, some time with it because it's, it's really, uh, incredible deep work. Um, but Mark, I would love to know, um, it's a question that I ask everyone that, that comes on the show. Um, what does influence mean to you? What does influence mean to me? That's so mm -hmm. interesting because I'm in the field of traumatic influence. Yes. I'm in the field. Yes. Of, we are influenced unconsciously. I mean, that's my first answer. 
Um, it's probably not my creative answer for my own uh, music or poetry, you know, my creative life. That What influences me would be different there. But let me start with this, because when I hear the word influence, I'm always working with traumatic influences. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm always looking at how we are being affected or influenced by what we don't remember in our childhood, as a baby, in utero, or what's not talked about in our family history. In fact, I, I always find that what make, you know, I ask this question, why do traumas repeat? Why do some people seem to relive and other people don't? What makes them repeat? And what I found is that when traumas aren't talked about or when the healing in our family is incomplete, uh, you know, because the pain or the grief is, is too great or, or the people involved are, are rejected by us or excluded, then aspects of these traumas can show up in later generations, you know, unconsciously. We'll repeat the pattern, or as I talked about earlier, share a similar unhappiness until that trauma has a a chance to heal. I always believe that the contraction of a trauma is ultimately looking for its expansion, and it will repeat in a family until that expansion happens. You know, I want to say that I created that thought, but I, I, I didn't Freud noticed this 100 years ago when he was talking about um, traumatic repetition, repetition compulsion, that the trauma is merely seeking an opportunity for a better outcome so it can heal. Mm. It's healing, too. It's just, yeah. I, I love that answer because it's just fascinating. Everyone has a different perspective of how they view it based off of their work and their life. Um, what is your biggest hope for someone who takes this book and reads it and uses it um, to heal? Is healing your ultimate, um, your barometer for success in this work? Well, my hope is that they do the practices and do what you did. Yeah. Write down your trauma language, your core language, um, because I believe that we all have a mystery that we live with. And you know, unexplained symptoms that we either inherit or that, that happen too early for us to remember, fears, anxieties, obsessive thoughts, symptoms that we think are ours. My, my hope is that people um, are, make links. That, that's my hope. Hmm. They read the book and they go, oh, no, you know, I never connected this. That's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because there are many of us who suffered with unexplained symptoms and we haven't been able to make the link. Link. I also wrote this book because in, um, in, in the field, there hadn't been enough, in my opinion, enough um, research mm-hmm. uh, about these epigenetic mechanisms. And I love that, that uh, I, I hope that the book is it's done really well. And I hope it's been an influencer um, to help more. To, I'd like to see more studies. Mm-hmm. I'd like to understand as we talked about earlier, what is the biological mechanism? I call it a biofield, but what is the biological mechanism that has us repeating the misfortunes of our parents? That is not epigenetics. See, epigenetics is is just one piece of the puzzle. Embryologists have known for a hundred years that the female egg line stopped dividing when our grandmother was uh, five months pregnant with our mother. So when our mother was inside our grandmother's womb, the egg that will one day become us, was already there, already present in our mother's womb. And so that, that's not epigenetics, that's embryology. Mm-hmm. So 
when we look at that, we have to ask this other question of, well, does that mean grandma's thoughts, feelings um, affected mom and affected the even us in, in the egg? Uh, because Bruce Lipton, his work went on to tell us that, yes, mother's emotions were chemically communicated to the fetus through the placenta, and they biochemically altered genetic expression. There's so many places to go with this, and we're just barely scraping the surface. The science is thir- 13 years old. Mm. You know, it's... Well, if if what we put in our bodies and the air that we breathe, you know, and the location that we live in when we're pregnant can have vast effects on the makeup of our child, then why couldn't the emotional as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those chemicals that we're we're breathing in, it's all connected. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, I I have this Facebook page where I list all the new studies that have come out and um, it, it's every week I post a new study. Um, I stay very much on the science. You know, there's, there's one recently in uh, Journal of American Medicine Psychiatry that followed mothers who suffered trauma as children and found that their daughters were likely to struggle with depression and bipolar disorder. And then there was this recent uh, Tufts University study that found that men who suffered trauma as children were able to pass anxiety onto their children through their sperm. This was the first study in humans that showed that human sperm actually mirrored the same changes, the same non-coding RNA, the genetic, that's a genetic material that regulates gene expression, as the sperm in mice that were traumatized as pups. So there's so much going on. Mm. And it's hopeful because, as I said earlier, they're also showing that we can heal uh, through positive experiences and practicing feeling the positive sensations. Well, Mark, where can we find that? Do you have the Facebook link? We can make sure to add it as well if you know it. Uh, I think they go. I think it's Mark Willen. No, I think it's Facebook slash Mark Willen. I think. That's okay, great. How- and it's M A R K W O L Y N N. Correct. And MarkWolin.com. MarkWillen.com is my website. And um, yeah, yeah, Julie, it's so, so nice to meet you and talk with you and spend this time with you. You as well. And just again, thank you so much for your work. And this book is truly, truly transformative and phenomenal and eye-opening and, and healing and can do so much for those who read it. So for all of those listening, I highly encourage you to go wherever books are sold (laughs) and pick up It Didn't Start With You. Um, You know, every friend and family member that I've passed it along to has said the same thing of just how incredible the work is and bold and groundbreaking it is. So I, again, I appreciate your time and I cannot wait to see, you know, all of the, um, the aha moments and, and, and the things, the triggers, because, you know, triggers are good because it's pushing you somewhere. All of the triggers that may come up for some of these, for some of those that are listening today, um, even if it's resistance, that may be kind of telling you something that you need to dive into. So thank you, Mark, for, for sharing it with us. Julie, thank you for having me.
All right, that is it for today. Now, as you know, some of our best conversations actually happen after the show. So I want you to find me on Instagram, head on over to our Facebook group at the Influencer Podcast, and let me know your thoughts about today's show. All right, I will see you again, same time, same place next week. Next time on the Influencer Podcast. What I've found in my health coaching practice and how I've actually helped women make real change in their lives the first step always has to go back to what do you want? And the first chapter of the health habit is talking about people confuse outcomes and goals. And that's why they never accomplish anything.